Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Clara and Carolina, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on predictive coding and dendrites, which is a combination of two of our favorite topics, I just realized. Yes, it's a great mashup. I love it. <laughs> yeah, Carolina stands for predictive coding and I, I stand for dendrites. <laughs> So I'll just begin by first explaining what dendrites are and why there's increasing interest researching dendrites. And then we'll discuss how it's related to predictive coding, which we did a previous episode solely on what predictive coding is. Mm -hmm. It was one of our first episodes, actually. Yeah. So dendrites are the tree-like structures that you see when you normally see an image of a neuron. And they extend out from the cell body and they receive majority of inputs to the neuron. So 90% of synapses within a pyramidal neuron are found on dendrites. And they integrate all of these inputs, which then get transformed into an output in the form of an action potential. So a key thing is that dendritic morphology, or the shape of the dendrites, influences how these inputs are integrated and propagated, and therefore transformed into outputs. And relatively recently, it has been shown increasingly that they are able to perform complex nonlinear computations. So a linear computation would be where all of the inputs come into a neuron and then they sum to produce an output. But nonlinear computations are when the output created by multiple inputs isn't just the sum of them, but it is greater than the sum of them. So it's like an amplification mm. mechanism. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Another key thing about dendrites that contributes to their computational abilities is that they contain many compartments. And so in terms of what types of inputs they receive and also in terms of the properties of these structures that contribute to how they process the inputs. So basically you can imagine a single neuron now with these computationally capable dendrites as being as acting like multiple neurons but within a neuron. Mm -hmm. And this is a theory that's sort of gaining traction as more research is being done and also in combination with research into artificial intelligence mm -hmm. <laughs> is this idea that in, in artificial neural networks, for example, point neurons are commonly used, and these are neurons that sum their inputs linearly only. So it's just like a simple neuron, inputs arrive, they sum. But now this knowledge that the dendrites are able to perform nonlinear computations, then we can think of a artificial neural network, like a basic artificial neural network, as actually representing what's happening within a neuron, and then maybe this can contribute to our understanding of how the brain can output such intelligence because if you have multiple of these neurons then interacting it's basically another layer of complexity. Yes, that definitely seems like it adds a new layer of complexity and yeah. I would be interested in seeing the models of artificial neural networks that would come that would derive from this new information or this new theory yeah. of um, dendritic inputs and outputs. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, so this is something that Panayota Poirazi is working on. And she and Spiridon Chavlis wrote a paper in 2021 about drawing inspiration from biological dendrites to empower artificial neural networks. And it's really, really interesting about how 
um, nature comes up with the best solutions. We just need to learn from it. Yeah. But yeah, like dendrites perform these complex computations and they're also efficient in their biological structure in that they're tiny, they're very thin mm. and they can spread out from one neuron to reach many, many input, many different inputs. Yeah. It's really impressive how, um, yeah, their morphology is catered to their function. Once again, structure yes. function relationships. And then the dynamics that we talk <laughs> about. Um, this, basically, this, I think this whole episode is about the importance of the dynamics that can occur within a structure, though. Mm. Yeah. So it's really interesting how you talk about how these different types of inputs into dendrites, whether it produces linear or nonlinear outputs, um, because in predictive coding theory, there is a really great emphasis on the type of inputs that the brain receives. So the sensory inputs are what the brain uses to create internal or generative models, which then allows it to make inferences about its environment. So yeah, it's really interesting to also not only look at the outputs, but the type of inputs that it's um, receiving. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue into <laughs> um, one theory that I want to explain, which is that of Matthew Larkham mm-hmm. that he published in 2013 on how this ability to associate sensory information and the perceived experience with existing internal representation to decrease prediction error and Mm. optimize the um, processing of information, which is known as predictive coding, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) which he described more succinctly, how this can be done within dendrites. Yeah, that's so cool. Because I always think of predictive coding as a very, like, almost brain-wide level. You have the inputs going in, and then you can see it by the layers, and we are starting to get close... Well, we're starting to have a better understanding of how this affects the layers and the excitation versus inhibition. But, yeah, it's really interesting to understand it from a very neuronal, dendritic level. (laughs) Yeah. You wouldn't really expect necessarily the mechanisms to kind of parallel, or, like, Mm. the functions to parallel each other. Oh, my God. And this is a good example of where, like, a larger scale model or system works, has similar rules to a smaller scale. Or at least that's what I'm predicting. But you go ahead and explain (laughs) with Matthew Larkin's telescope. definitely. So the cortex, which is the outer surface of the brain, contains layers, as you mentioned. So layer one is the most external layer, and then layer two, three, four, five, it goes deeper and deeper. And uh, what Matthew Larkham's theory focuses on is layer five neurons, pyramidal neurons, which are like the major neuron type, Mm -hmm. which have their cell bodies in layer five, but they extend their dendrites all through all the layers to layer one. So the key thing here is that they have these huge dendrites because they have a function in integrating information from various brain regions. Now, the coolest part of it is that different types of information are inputted onto different regions of the dendrite. So as I explained earlier with like compartmentalization of the dendrites, this assists the computational functions. Specifically, um, we'll divide types of information into two main types. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sensory information, which is considered feed-forward, and then feedback information, which would be long-range connections coming from other cortical areas. And this would be analogous to the bottom-up sensory information and top-down contextual information converging onto the dendrite. And So interesting. <laughs> yeah. So firstly, the structure of this, which has been known for a while now, gives us a clue that it could be having a role in predictive coding. 
But another phenomenon that really supports this is the idea of dendritic spikes. Mm-hmm. So initially, it was believed that neurons act in a binary way, we can say, in that their outputs are action potentials, which is a single spike. And so the neuron spikes when it crosses a current threshold, when enough inputs uh, stimulate an output. Yeah, yeah, exactly. These action potentials are mainly driven by the sodium ions. But in layer 5 pyramidal neurons, another type of nonlinear event has been shown to occur. And these are driven by calcium ions, and they're called calcium action potentials or dendritic spikes. So sodium spikes are initiated by the cell body, but calcium spikes are initiated in the dendrites, specifically the dendrites that are located far away from the cell body. Then beyond this, let's take it one step further, you've got the sodium spikes, the calcium spikes, and then because of this physical separation of the events, say they both occur, they can interact with each other. And this is the hypothesis that the theory is built on, the interaction between sodium and calcium spikes. For example, if a action potential occurs, so a sodium spike, then it can travel back through the dendrites, called back propagation, mm. and it can help lower the threshold for a calcium spike to occur so that a calcium spike is more likely to occur. That's so interesting. Yeah, because I was going to ask, how do these two different... Um, ion channel processes interact with each other yeah so that makes sense it's actually really interesting that you like you framed it that way because then it's it's just cool when you think about that it's like ion channels to current Mm -hmm. traveling as electrical activity to elicit another biological ionic response response (laughs) to then (laughs) go back to current like yeah it's, it's the perfect example of biophysics really yeah so this is called back propagation activated calcium spike firing or just for short, back-firing hypothesis. Yeah, and it's thought that this is a major mechanism for how information of different types can interact. So say sensory information is coming into um, part of the dendrite that is closer to the cell body, so it elicits a action potential, mm-hmm. and then um. Um, this information travels up through to the dendrites, and it makes it more likely that a calcium event will occur. And then at the same time, you've got this feedback information, which is inputted to the same region where a calcium event would occur. Mm-hmm. So if it does input it, then this will go back to the cell body and elicit a spike. That's so cool. Would this be related to the knowledge that In predictive coding, when there's very little prediction error, so the brain expects a certain stimulus and it guesses it correctly. Like, um, if I'm looking at a tree and then it takes a while for my brain to process that and the reality is that I'm looking at a tree, the prediction error is very, very small. But if I'm looking at a tree and I mix it up for, I don't know, a bush or something, the prediction error will be really big. And there's research that shows when the prediction error is small, when there's a very small like surprise element, that there is less um, brain activity, there's less uh, gamma wavelengths. Whereas when there's a high surprise or a high predictive error, there is more activity. And so this could be related to what you were saying about how the initial input, the sensory input, uh, causes an action potential and potentially if 
this input comes again, so you you keep seeing the tree, you keep having the same stimuli, and the predictive error is small, then that can cause backpropagation and lower the membrane potential. I'm speculating, but like maybe is that how like potentially the the whole circuit level feedback feed forward system could be implemented in the neuronal system? Okay, so short answer, yes. I think I understand what you mean. So in the neuronal system, if feedback information arrives at the same time as feed forward information, then you're more likely to have these interactions and associative pairings between these events, and then it's more likely to drive a spike. Another thing I forgot to mention is that calcium spikes are unique in that they occur in the dendrites, but they actually then travel to the cell bodies and they elicit action potentials, but a burst of firing, so Mm. multiple action potentials. And so the neuron is more likely to fire in a burst overall, if this occurs. Mm -hmm. If the feedback information doesn't, doesn't approach the neuron at the same time as the feed forward information, then this isn't going to happen and the neuron will fire less. Mm -hmm. So then to summarize, what's happening at the neuronal level is you're aiming for coincident input of feed forward feedback to drive neuronal firing in these major neurons. I'm not sure exactly how that would relate to the fact that you said in predictive coding in general, it's related to less neuronal firing to when the prediction error is decreased. Yeah. But I think the problem here is that I don't know what the feedback information would mean. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I feel like on the neuronal level, the feedback information is this back propagation, which may not be, which would be different to feedback input, I believe, because that would mean that there's two different types of inputs into the dendrites, feed forward and feedback at the same time right? Yes, there is. You did mention that a a lower prediction error is associated with gamma waves. Yeah. This is also interesting and kind of contradicting because uh, regarding dendritic spikes, this associative pairing between the back calcium activity and the cell body activity is blocked by inhibitory neurons. Yeah, I was actually going to talk about those. Yeah, and and I thought inhibitory neurons are generally, very generally, involved in gamma frequency, like their activity is involved in gamma frequency. So then I'm thinking it's actually contradictory because then more gamma, more inhibition, less association. But then maybe that does correspond with less of a prediction error. Um, Okay, so this is really interesting. So what I initially said about that, oh, could this be an example of where the the larger scale systems, such as the feed-forward feedback information in the brain, the sensory information in the brain, could mirror the smaller scale system on the neuronal level, but what we're finding in our discussions is that maybe it it doesn't. doesn't. Or maybe, yeah, like we said, we're not able to compare it because we don't know what actually feedback inputs, what type of information it would actually convey. Mm. Would it be the same information as the sensory information that you're receiving? You you can't know that. I think it's complicated depending on which areas of the brain you're looking at. For example, I think the visual system and the auditory system is a really, like, relatively easy and simple brain area to look at predictive coding because so you have the the eye which the sensory inputs feeds into the thalamus which feeds into the visual cortex so it's very 
like intuitive. Whereas in the medial entorhinal cortex, which is above the hippocampus and responsible for spatial cognition, the inputs and outputs of information into the hippocampus and vice versa, I wouldn't intuitively say that's feedback and feed forward because it's more input and output. So I think, yeah, it's just, it's slightly different depending on which brain areas you're looking at. And also talking about the interneurons in layer one, I think it's really cool their regulatory roles that they play. It's interesting how the literature suggests that the feedback inputs tend to be more inhibitory. Yeah, because inhibition is definitely a different form of of feedback. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, feedback information just refers to anything that's not sensory. Yeah, and it's interesting how this feedback information appears to be more regulatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's through these interactions between the feedback feedforward within a neuron that enables the complexity of nonlinear um, activity. Mm-hmm. And also, I think for sure, it's different in different brain regions. And the predictive coding theories have only been applied to the cortex so far, like the neocortex. Yeah. And not necessarily directly been applied to the hippocampus because the hippocampus is a much older part of the brain. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't perform this in the same way. On top of being brain region specific, this dendritic predictive coding hypothesis is very specific to layer five pyramidal neurons Mm -hmm. because there are other pyramidal neurons that project their dendrites in layer two and three but these rules don't apply (laughs) in short so yeah it's the specific function of these huge these neurons that are huge integrators of different types of information that's really interesting yeah i also just wanted to mention that there's this really interesting paper by mckay on epistemological automata And basically what he talks about is essentially like the predictive coding theory and how we form. um, Basically, he says that an intelligent automation is required to react with its field of activity if it knew the current state of that field. So it's kind of talking about how in order to predict what's happening, we need to have already um, some sort of information about that field and it's he's mentions generative models and how it it goes from hidden causes to sensory consequences which is essentially like the mode of action where we perceive something so we'll perceive something we create our own internalized perception of it and then that drives consequences such as motor movement which yes something that stood out to me when you said that was the interacting was with your environment or interacting which reminded me of then, yeah, the importance of what the output really is, ultimately, from the brain, always, mm-hmm. is motor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we saw in the mind-muscle uh, connection episode. Yeah. And he also says that, so in order for this generative model to occur, or, or this epistemological automata idea to occur, it requires that relevant information has a physical representation within the mechanism of the artifact, which is essentially what we were talking about. That's so interesting how you related that to the not m- what he was talking about, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably a different direction of train of thought. But, yeah. No, that's, that's great to then have this level of, yeah, like the f- philosophical level of yeah. understanding related to the network predictive coding level and then the neuronal level, which mm-hmm. definitely relates to our one of our recent episodes, Planes of Understanding in Science. Yes. 
Um, and yeah, I just love epistemology. I always somehow find a way to insert it into our topics. Related to the motor activity, I wanted to mention some recent studies looking at the in vivo evidence for dendritic spikes and how they can influence behavior. So in vivo means when you do experiments in an animal that's that's also behaving and then you can relate the neural mechanisms to the behavior. So firstly, um, using new imaging methods, dendritic spikes have been imaged by imaging calcium activity in uh, small populations of neurons. But specifically, I I did notice a paper that came out today. (laughs) Very cool. Fresh out of the print. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, it's in bioarchives, so it's still pre-print. But it was by Alexander Ford and, and colleagues, and what they were investigating was layer 5 pyramidal neurons in the auditory cortex that receive input from subcortical structures, specifically the inferior colliculus, which if you study neuroscience you know is related to auditory processing. And okay, the key thing that they found is that these calcium spikes that were elicited in the layer 5 pyramidal neurons actually required motor activity, Mm. not sensory activity, to elicit calcium spikes specifically. That's interesting. And the calcium spikes enabled a form of plasticity in these inputs that enabled the learning of sensory discrimination. So they trained, I probably should have explained a little bit the experiment first, but they trained these mice in a sensory discrimination task to understand the difference between two different tones of sound. Mm. And then they measured calcium spikes in response to this whole task. And they saw when the calcium spikes occurred and whether it was like, Um, before the sound or after the sound, before the reward or after the reward. And they found that the calcium spikes occurred more often during the trials when the mice would get a reward. And this reflected specifically the the mouse's actions, so that motor activity associated with reward. I won't go into the details as to how they showed this. You can check out the paper. (laughs) But I found it so interesting, this interaction between motor and sensory, um, because of these dendritic events and the incoming motor activity would technically arrive in the dendrites located away from the cell body because it's not sensory information. Sensory information would come to the dendrites located closer to the cell body, according to Matthew Larkham's hypothesis. And so the calcium spikes occur where the motor activity is inputted. And so the fact that it occurred more often when there was motor action activity, that actually makes so much sense if you think about it. The last thing to mention, though, is that action information isn't actually necessarily motor because it can also be a learned representation of a rewarded outcome. So in other words, imagining yourself then performing the motor action. That's so interesting. I think, yeah, there's still a lot of unknowns in this field and the circuitry is really complicated. Um, But it's really interesting to look at the feedback, feedforward processes, not only in the brain-wide level or cortex level, but also in the dendritic level. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed predictive coding and dendrites as much as we love it. (laughs) (laughs) Feel free to follow us on Twitter and check out our website so that you can find out how to interact with our podcast.